Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder in the lion's den. Now, a couple weeks ago, or four weeks ago, two or four weeks ago, I'm not sure when I'm going to release this one, we did an interview with Phil Frazier in northern Wisconsin, in Rhinelander. And while I was up there, Phil told me a bunch of stories about our guest today. And we talked a little bit about it on the podcast, but I was like, all right, I got to get John Gilberts on here because this is a really, really cool story of just how Christ completely and totally changed you and changed the direction of your life. And so, John, my man, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. So you grew up in northern Wisconsin. Yeah, far north. Um, I, I'm from a town called Loretta of about 30 people right next door to Draper, which is about 100 people. Together we call the Twin Cities. Um, <laughs> and it's right on the edge of the National Forest, about 60 miles south of Lake Superior. It's blue-collar logging community, um, hunting, fishing, packers. That's all that really matters. Ice fishing. Jim Fennelson sitting right next to you, and he's got a sick look on his face, the Viking fan that he is. Oh, my. <laughs> well. So talk about, talk about growing up. What was it like? What was your family like? It's, so you had a rough childhood, didn't you? Well, yes and no. Okay. It's the weirdest combination of things. Overall, I'm an optimist, and I would say I had a pretty good childhood. The facts kind of belie that. So... When I was about five years old, I, I'm an only child. I grew up with my mother, my aunt, and my grandmother. Obviously, there's a key character missing from that story. Yeah. Um, my father, uh, when I was five, just getting ready to go to kindergarten, my mother sat me down and said, okay, we've never really talked about this, but the reason your father is not here is he's in prison. Mm. And... He's in prison because when you were six months old, he tried to kill us. So he's a former military guy. I mean, you can kind of dial up 1969, just a lot of unrest and angst in the world. Alcoholic. Really? And uh, I was born with a cleft palate. And so he just could not wrap his mind around the idea that his child was not perfect. So he blamed my mother for that. Mm. Came home drunk one night. Um, stabbed her repeatedly in the stomach and threw, threw me th through the window of the trailer. Um, so I have like marks on my hand wow. from that age. Yeah. And so that's like a lot to take in. I mean, as a five-year-old, five you have no idea what those words even really mean. Yeah. So, you know, off to kindergarten, um, you can picture like 30 kids sitting around on their little carpet square. Yeah. And the teacher's like, hey, you know, stand up, tell us your name, tell us what your parents do. So, you know, we go around the circle, get to be my turn. I stood up, you know, my name is Johnny Gilberts and my mother works at the cafe and my dad's in jail. Um, mm. Didn't sat back down and like two kids down, like this kid's like, ah, your, your dad's a jailbird. I'm like, oh. Now, that didn't feel good. No. <laughs> you know, only child. You're not ready for that. You're yeah. not used to being around kids. Yeah. Um, but let it go. So, you know, you're at school now. That's recess, swing sets. So afterwards, went out to the playground. And this young lad decided he needed to further express himself to me. Oh, man. And I'm, I can remember being on the swing. And he's started in again. And I'm like. I, I don't like this. Yeah. And so it was a kind of a pivotal moment. Yeah. Um, but I came off the swing, helped him to the ground, um, <laughs> stepped on his face, I mean, broke his nose. And I can remember the like recess guardian literally hauling us off to the principal's office like two sacks of potatoes, blood streaming from his face. So he went to the hospital and I was suspended my first day of kindergarten. <laughs> um, as they figured, what are we going to do with this beast? Yeah. You know? Were you a big kid for your age? Uh, not really, but mad is mad. Yeah. Um, and I think that kind of set the tone. 
and my reputation throughout school. Really? And, you know, people make fun of you. If you want them to stop, if you hit them hard enough, they will. And so I was, very, I was a violent kid. I was very angry. Mm. Uh, and yet, I was very good in school. Got great grades. Mm. And there was this paradox uh, throughout my childhood. And, you know, at the same time, at home was tough. My aunt, the man in my life, <laughs> I mean, she's not, but she, Northern Wisconsin's a rough place. It's a man's world. A lot of power tools, a lot of hunting and fishing. And yeah. Stuff you have to learn how to do to survive. Yeah. And so she taught me all of that from cleaning fish to gutting deer to chewing tobacco to, you know, the whole nine yards. But she was also, in her own right, a very angry alcoholic. She's a bartender. So, like, mm-hmm. I remember kids making fun of me at school because, like, she grabbed their dad, pull him over into the middle of the bar and beat the crap out of him the night before because he wouldn't, you know, she cut him off and he wouldn't leave. So it's that kind of place. Yeah. Yeah. So growing up, you have all this anger, yet you're a good student. What happened that kind of changed it all for you? (laughs) You can imagine all those things kind of progressing. And as you get older, you have the opportunity to get into more stuff. So by the time I was a freshman, I had been to detox once. And really, you know, it's not hard to get beer when your mom works at the tavern, just walk in the back door and walk out with a six pack. So I had a reputation. Things weren't good in school. Junior high, I was actually suspended for the year. What? I I stayed, I went to school, but I had to go to the in-school suspension room, which is a little tiny block room right next to the principal's office, 167 cement bricks in it, if you are interested. (laughs) Um, And actually, you know, at first it felt bad. And then after a while, I'm like, shoot, this is cool. (laughs) Because I had my homework done by 10 in the morning and I sat there and read Lord of the Rings or whatever. And the principal over in in time took pity on me a little bit. And so like every once in a while I'd be like, hey, I'm going skiing this afternoon. You want to come? Really? And so he would take me cross-country skiing or whatever. So it was weird, but it was, you know, not normal. How important was that for you, for the principal, to show some interest in you as a young man yeah. without a father growing up? Huge. And, and there is an element of it takes a village in my whole story. Yeah. Um, for sure. So... That all leads up to my freshman, between freshman and sophomore year of high school. Unbeknownst to me, nine kids from the local evangelical free church were off at church camp. Yeah. And the sermon series or whatever was, what is it you don't think God can do? And so at the end of the week, they were challenged to come up with things they didn't think God could do and put him to the test. And so, like, we know this kid in our high school who's a complete jerk. I'm not sure that you, God could change him. So, no, fine. Was, was it that you were a jerk, or was it that you just... I was were- in trouble all the time. And I, I was just visibly in trouble. So, there, you, know, you know how kids are. Yeah. So, that, like, hey, let's go wind up John. <laughs> and, you know, there was always somebody who was, like, pushing the buttons, pushing the buttons. If you push my buttons enough... I will push back Enneagram 8. <laughs> so, you know, that was kind of, I was just known for that. And, you know, I, got, I did a, a number of dumb things. You know, all the dumb things kids do. Vandalism or this, that, or the other. Mm-hmm. So I was known. The camp guy challenged them, pray for him every day. And then share the gospel every chance you get. So, and, and this is pretty amazing when you think about, we're talking about high school kids here. Um, the level of commitment that they showed is still amazing to me to this day. And I, I think it's a motivator for me when I think of doing something dumb now, I'm like, eh, you know, a lot of people kind of invested in my life. Let's pull up on that. But they did it. So, you know, school starts and, you know, it's fall in Northern Wisconsin. You know, it's either Packer Gold or Hunter Orange. 
And, you know, we start talking about the Packers and then we're talking about Jesus and then we're talking about hunting or whatnot. And then somehow Jesus is the hunter. Um, I'm like, okay, I see where this is going. So how did you receive that? Not well. <laughs> Not well. What was your, did you have any experience with no. Jesus, religion, Christianity? I think, I think my, my mom had taken me to church for a Christmas program once, yeah. but that was it. Okay. Except for the fact that my grandmother was a devout Christian. Really? So like she had like the old navigator memory verses sitting on like above the sink. And I would hear her praying around the house all the time. Yeah. But that was it. And my aunt was not <laughs> yeah. at all uh, interested in anything to do with God. Now, your aunt and your mom were your grandmother's daughters? Yeah. Okay. What, two of nine. Okay. So... Yeah, no experience with Christianity, but if there was a God, and you know, this is, I, I ate up all the secular stuff, all the science fiction, all that stuff, evolution. If there was a God, I got a really crappy hand. I was the only kid in my class who didn't have a father, mm. and it didn't have a father in a place where a man is kind of needed in the picture. So I, yeah. I was not happy, yeah. <laughs> and so I pushed back. And you know, uh, they just kept coming every day with a new argument or a new verse or, hey, why don't you come over and play volleyball? And they would send you know, the girls to do the inviting for that. And, you, know, you know how it is. But they were absolutely consistent. And at some point you're like, I hate this, but I kind of like it. Uh, you know, that somebody's that interested in me. So they did, did the you whole have any school year. Did you have any friends Not growing really. up? Uh, one or two people who were friends like the friends who hey let's go do something we shouldn't do those yeah. kind of friends yeah i yeah. had three close friends yeah um but that was it and and they were these were not people who would be in your corner if you needed them they would they be were there. Just there for the fun <laughs> they were there for the fun and free beer or whatever yeah so their last ditch effort after a whole year of this was to invite me to great america uh which is huge amusement park just down north of Chicago. Yep. There are a lot of things to do in northern Wisconsin. There are zero roller coasters. Um, you, can, <laughs> you can jump out of a tree. You can roll down a hill. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can do. But there's not a roller coaster to be had. So yeah. I'm like, oh, well, all right, I can put up with this. I'm just going gonna, gonna to take all my Iron Maiden t-shirts. I'm going to plug into my music. I'm going to make fun of them, and I'm going to ride a roller coaster for free. This is going to be a blast. They didn't mention one other feature of the trip, and that was... Um, youth event? It's a youth event, and that there was a speaker. Uh, the speaker was a former prisoner. And so mm. they had, I'd heard the gospel 17 ways from Sunday. But when you hear someone who has truly done bad things... See, that was my whole issue with the gospel was... I bore the guilt of my mother being stabbed. Oh, so, oh, like, I, I felt like imagine. you didn't have to convince me I was a sinner. You had to convince me that there was something that could be done about it. Yeah. And so suddenly there's a man who did far worse oh. things than I had ever done, Ooh. talking about forgiveness, and, like, Ooh. the lights just clicked on. I, I remember that night walking along the shores of Lake Michigan and... Zion National Park, looking up at the stars and the trees, and, and you see the majesty of the Milky Way for what it really is. It's God's extravagant artwork. I gave my life to Christ. I went and banged on the, the guy's camper. <laughs> and we came out, prayed. The speaker? The speaker. And ironically, so Phil and Joanna yeah. are on this trip. Okay. So they're part of the sponsors, and they're the... As we drove back at the end of the trip, they're driving back to my little town in the middle of nowhere to move there as youth workers. So, you know, I accepted Christ. The, you know, five or six hours home or seven or whatever it is from down there was, okay, how are you going to tell your family? How are you going to tell your friends? What are you going to do with this? And because I had heard the gospel for nine months straight, I was actually 
prepared. I mean, so I, I would say I was discipled for nine years as a very, or nine months as a very reticent disciple. Yeah. <laughs> but the next day I got up and went and told my friends, two of the three actually accepted Christ. Seriously. The other one hasn't really talked to me since. Didn't go so well with my family. That's a larger story. No, let's hear it. Um, well, my aunt, when she found out that I had accepted Christ and become a Christian, she lost it. She was very unhappy about that. And there's a reason for it. So when she was fairly young, late teens, our whole family, their family went to church. Previous to that, my grandfather, uh, World War I vet, angry, angry man, drunk. He accepts Christ. My family then becomes Christians, and so now he's an angry, angry Christian, which you can just imagine how that goes. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't good. And so my aunt, I think at probably age 16, was raped. Um, she had the child, and then a couple days after having the child, my grandfather basically said, no, I can't have this around my family, and made her give it up for adoption. And all because what would the people at church think? Oh, no. So, you know, I knew none of this. I knew none yeah, of this. Yeah. So when my father tried to kill us, grandma said to my mother, well, come back and live with us. So she welcomed me as a boy into the house, but she did not welcome her, my aunt's boy into the house. So from the get-go, my aunt has angst toward me because every time she sees me, she's thinking about her own kid, which she knows nothing about. There's an end to that story, too. Yes. So probably that's 2012. I'm living in Germany as a missionary. Talk to my family, like right Christmas Eve, and my mom says out of the blue, like everybody should know this, um, well, Pat's son called the other day, and I'm like, Pat is a son? Like, what? Yeah. Like, and so this whole story comes out. She hasn't known what has happened to her son for 65 years until his adoptive parents die. But a good Christian family adopted him. Yeah. Um, he grew up as a Christian. So suddenly her son yeah. is sharing the gospel with her as well. So that's, it's still a, a redemptive story in process. Yeah. And Phil is a huge part of that. Because yeah. I mean, when I was in youth group and then afterwards, he just decided he was going to love this very unlovable woman. And she is a handful. I mean, he told it, me stories. You, I mean, swearing is an art form. It's a beautiful, beautiful art form. <laughs> um, with her, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and, you know, Phil and Joanna, with all their little kids, you know, they would have her over to the house and, and like, oh my God. <laughs> so, but yeah, you know, so... All of that's kind of going on. Uh, How did your those, mom react? My mother was, I think, very relieved. I, she also is like a closet Christian. I actually did, in later years, draw her salvation story out of her. Really? But she met my father in the church. So yay church, you know, as far yeah. as my extended family is going, they're yeah. not exactly... Angry grandpa. <laughs> yeah, right. So, yeah, we're all this bunch of broken people yeah. but yeah. god weaves it all in the end yeah some of my friends accept christ this youth pastor moves to town i mentioned this and this is this is the kind of crazy things and you say what would you do for the gospel a young married couple literally been married less than a week about to go on their honeymoon they know that this really bad kid just accepted Christ, and it feels like leaving him alone is throwing him into the wolves. And so they'd invited me on their honeymoon. Didn't tell me what it was. I mean, we went on a road trip together, studied the book of Acts. Every time I see Joanna, I just have to apologize. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But, I mean, wow. What a... Investment what a in you. Investment, right? Yeah. And Phil, however he was taught, I think it was Youth for Christ... His entire ministry model is spend time with people and talk about God stuff. So canoes and hunting and like, this is how a man would disciple a young boy. Oh, um, and it was, it was beautiful. And, and I, I was growing. 
and my friends had accepted Christ. So, like I said, it was a youth group of nine kids, right? Yeah. In a school of 300. And 12 months later, in a school of 300, on a Wednesday night, there are about 130 kids showing up for a youth group. Um, just 130 kids. 100 in this yeah, half the school. Oh my God. Basically. Oh coming my gosh. on these youth events. Star basketball player accepts Christ. Wow. I, I mean, it was a mini revival started by young people. And the coolest thing, the, the point where you're like, okay, this is God. So some of the, the, because the kids were getting involved, then the parents got to traipse them around, right? And so winter is about two and a half hours from Rhinelander where all of our events took place. Mm-hmm. So, you know, driving kids and back and forth once a week by the van loads. And suddenly some of the fathers were like, our kids are better Christians than we are. Um, and they started showing up at church. What? They started Bible studies. They started being active Christians in the community. What? And like things were changing. Like this is the move of the gospel in the middle of nowhere in northern Wisconsin. So if that's how you're born into Christianity, why would you ever settle for something less later? Yeah. So which is probably how I ended up in missions. Those are the good parts. I mean, the downside for me, because, you know, you, that moment of, oh, gosh, God can forgive me. This is amazing, except Christ. Like the next thought, shoot. <laughs> I'm going to have to deal with my father. You know, I'm going to have to deal with forgiveness. I'm going to have to. Ooh. And so, like, in, you know, every time you, like, you see the word forgiveness in a verse, you're like, shoot. Like, I I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to deal with that. And God was like, "Mm, you know, (laughs) what's good for the goose? And so, I mean, it took me through the rest of my time in high school and a lot of discipleship, a lot of talks to where, like, God brought me to the, I can forgive my father. So I ended up going to Moody uh, because that's where Joanna was from, and it's the only Christian school I'd ever heard of, so why not? <laughs> yeah, I'm a musician, so I had a, a free scholarship, jazz scholarship, which I had no idea that you know jazz music and Moody not really so much together. Um, really, you know, I just Moody at that point. This is mid '80s. I mean, this is a t- tight-laced place. Yeah, I'm pushing my six-foot-tall amplifier across the, you know the compound there and people are like, "Uh Oh, what's this? Yeah. So that was a culture shock. I mean, but you know, so those early year days at Moody, I finally just realized I have to solve this or resolve this. I wrote my father a letter. My was uncle he still knew, in prison at the time. Yeah. He, he had been in for three strikes. So he had stolen the car previously and done something else. So when, he assaulted my mother and me. I mean, that was it. They're like, yeah, we're done. Mm-hmm. And so that back then, three strikes, you're out, was the way it worked. Yeah. My uncle happened to know where he was. And so he gave me the address and wrote him a letter like, I don't know the whole story. I don't know you, but I, you need to know that I accepted Christ. And because of that, I need, I need to forgive you. I doubt <laughs> we will ever see each other or ever talk because it would kill my mother, I think, had I actually gone to see him. It would have felt like a betrayal. So here's the gospel. <laughs> and apparently, I got, probably six weeks later, I got a letter back. Short letter. I, I spoke with the chaplain and the prison, and I've accepted Christ. I don't know all of what that means, but I want forgiveness too. And I'm like, great. <laughs> Now we have all eternity to sort it out. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll yeah. talk when we get there. But, yeah. you know, uh, that, it's amazing to me. Um, wow. And I felt, you know, released of it at that point. Yeah. Um, many years later, and I know that there are very many differing views on the book, The Shack. Mm-hmm. Um, but The Shack was very healing for me. And I think if there is a theme in my whole story or in my certainly in my family, it's this idea that you rarely know the whole story. Um, like, I lived my entire life with my aunt, 
without understanding the pain that she lived under every day. Yeah. And I yeah. judged her with what I saw on the surface. I have no idea what my father's story is and what led him to where he was when he committed that crime. But God does. And it does make me wonder at times, like we're sur we go through life with family and when do we ever ask them about the hard parts of their story? So like we all know the funny stories and we know the you know, family legends, but you know, to have a conversation with your mother and say, hey, what were parts of life where you struggled? Or you know, what was that like? I think most of us never know. That's an interesting thought. So at Moody, we thought we were going to be youth ministers. Uh, that didn't work out. We? we end, oh, yeah. So I did meet my wife there. Okay. In fact, I met my wife the first day on campus at Moody. We rode the elevator up together to pay our bill. And I thought, hmm, there's a subject worth studying. <laughs> so, um, so my, my last name is Gilbert's. Her last name was Heard. And, and you know, first year of college, you end up getting put together a bit just be alphabetically. Yeah. <laughs> so that worked out well for me. Nice. And we got put on a practical Christian ministry together, uh, leading music at an old folks home. And by the end of the semester, I'm like, you know, so Moody made sure we were together the first semester. I'm going to make sure we're together for the rest of the time. And I just made myself indispensable in her, in her world. It took five years to convince her it was a good idea. Really? But I was pretty convinced right off the bat. Really? What was her hesitation? She comes from the opposite kind of family that I do. I mean, they're crazy in their own way. Kind of uh, militia member crazy, or so I thought at the time. And they still do Revolutionary War reenactments as Jeremiah and Mary Greenman at schools, public events, that kind of thing. But I've actually come to love and really respect all that they have done in retirement, especially to give the next generation a love for this country and our history. Where'd she grow up? Uh, Northeastern Ohio, actually very close to Kent State. Okay. But for all intents and purposes on the outside, she grew up in Little House on the Prairie, kind of Christian home. Yeah. So her family was like, this guy's dad's in prison, <laughs> you know. So they were not at all into it. In fact, we had two engagements and wedding dates because her father convinced her to give the ring back. And he was going to give her a, a red Grand Am and a, a trip to Colorado Springs so she could work out, focus on the family. <laughs> so, but she rejected all of that and chose me instead. Really? Yeah. What, so how did you react to the ring being handed back to you twice? <laughs> twice. Uh, I have a love-hate relationship with the building that used to be called the Hancock Tower because yeah. that's where it all happened. You know? Both times? Yeah. But I, I'm an Enneagram 8. I'm not easily dissuaded. Oh. Um, so, you know, you get the ring back, you smile and nod, and you start planning challenge. On, <laughs> on how you're going to get it back on her finger. So nice. Kudos to you. But, you know, in the end, and we had, in fact, again, Phil and some of these folks were instrumental in actually getting us married. At some point, they're like, dude, you guys just got to get married. It's right. Forget what your family is saying. Forget the rest of it. You got to do you. What did and, your family think? Oh, they loved her. Really? Oh, gosh. Really? Now, there's a story. All right. Let's hear it. We'll make this short. So they resisted allowing her to go visit my family until probably four years into our relationship. But finally, I took her along around Christmas time to Northern Wisconsin. Yeah. And I'm in fear and trepidation because at this point, we're not engaged yet. Yes. The, the deal is far from being sealed. And my family is crazy as the day is long. <laughs> so I remember we went by the school and some of my old teachers are pulling her aside saying, do you know about him? You know, like, not helpful. <laughs> and then the event of all events, that if ever something was going to sunder our relationship, this would have been it. Yes. So my family lived right on the edge of the National Forest. And we may or may not have participated in harvesting deer 
throughout the year, in season, out of season. For instance, <laughs> like on a Christmas Eve, when all the game wardens are clearly at home celebrating Christmas, who's going to hear a gunshot out of the bedroom? <laughs> out of the bedroom? <laughs> yeah. I mean, growing up, that, my job was to hold the light. So I'm like, just don't, I'm like, don't do this to me. And of course, you know, we go to bed and probably 1 a.m., boom! I'm like, oh, no, no, no. So, I mean, this is, it's cold. It's probably knee-deep snow. And now there's a dead deer out behind my house. <laughs> so they're like, get up, we got to go get the deer. And, um, you know, I'm out there with my aunt and my mother trying to find a dead deer, find the deer. They have my wife, who has, she Never is hunted. pristine. She is classical music, holding up the back legs of this deer apart. So you can gut it. While it's being gutted. Here, hold the liver. And I'm just like dying inside. <laughs> so, and yet she married me. So. Wow. Did she have any recollections of that? Any thoughts? Oh, yes. I mean, she was just wide-eyed and silent. <laughs> but, you know, what do you do? Family's family. So when did you guys get married? Got married in 1992. My wife had done a couple of summer missions trips. In fact, one of them was to Austria with Greater Europe Mission. Okay. And so I was living in the west side of Chicago, and she moved back right before we got married moved in with a college friend and went out looking for a job. At the time, Greater Europe Mission's office were there in Wheaton. Okay. I worked at Tyndale and she ended up working at Greater Europe Mission. Around that time, they decided like every other Christian ministry, they needed to move to Colorado Springs. <laughs> and so they liked her um, and offered to move her. She said, fine, just hire my husband to do something. <laughs> um, so they hired me to be the janitor slash mailroom guy, and we moved to Colorado, and that's how we ended up out here in 1994. Mm. Um, still trying to recover, I think, from Moody and kind of the, the legal, you know, from discipled and free into legalistic and rigid, and then through, you know, John Eldridge and some of Wild the Heart stuff kind of rescued out of legalism. Um, Talk about that. <laughs> well, ironically, the first cigar I ever had was off the, you know, merch table at the back of a Wild Heart event. I'm like, now that's interesting, <laughs> you know. And I'm like, we're free. And yeah. so I saw this group of man, st man st men standing out around a barrel smoking cigars. I'm like, that looks cool. <laughs> so I had no idea what I was doing, but it felt like a good rite of passage. Nice. Um, what drew you to John Eldridge and Wild at Heart? It was a return to the Christianity that I was introduced to in the beginning yeah. of like, you can be a strong blue collar man and be a Christian. You don't have to be neutered. <laughs> right. You don't have to be Mr. Rogers in the front row. So, and it, it was, just resonated with my heart. And I'm, I'm about all of those things. And it unwound a lot of stuff in our marriage. Really? Like um, what? <laughs> well, so I did say that it took us five years to get the deal sealed. And there may or may not have been one or two other guys involved. Okay. And so you ask about, you know, what do you do when you get the ring back? When you get the ring back and there's some swarthy Puerto Rican after your you know, the woman you love. Yeah. Um, Swarthy, I like that word. <laughs> uh, he, he was a piece of work, and I saw that he was a piece of work. This is an objective statement. Um, yeah, yeah. So I did scare him off. <laughs> he, How so? Uh, he, we had a conversation. He cried, he left. <laughs> um, but that feeling of betrayal was a seed planted, I think, mm. in our, our relationship. Mm. And like all arguments ended with coming back to that 
and it yeah. was eldritch is like like you may never hear i'm sorry and you don't need to you know god's bigger than this wow. let it go and we were able to do that wow. um so yeah a life of ministry youth ministry um in our years here which was amazing uh finally got around to trying to have kids every other aspect of my christian life had been pretty simple and pretty amazing and pretty easy yeah i mean i i progressed in work fairly easily moved up from the mail room <laughs> yeah i i didn't stay in the mail, mail room long i think within six months i was running the it department and have since progressed yeah but the kid thing did not come easy and i we did take a little while to get around to it yeah. i will admit i think we probably were 29 or so when we thought hey maybe we should have a kid and they don't tell you that that's not easy you know i remember hearing it as a youth when you're in youth group like if you're in a dark room with a, a girl there's probably a baby coming out the other side of the door you know yeah. i mean there is no one I've ever told me that not every pregnancy ends successfully yeah and so we over a, a span of about a decade had eight different miscarriages the final one in 2008 was fairly horrific because mm -hmm. uh, up up until then it had been you know you go in for the ultrasound and there's no heartbeat but this time there was a heartbeat so yay so all the way through to like 22 23 weeks and we went in for a better ultrasound and like you know there's that uh, well i don't like obgyns anyway because i'd had we'd had bad experiences but when you know they're sitting there looking at the screen and you're on the other side and they go that's not good so the baby's organs were on the outside there was no skull and so we then you're having this conversation about you know, if you, it's alive, it will never live. Um, and it's a risk to your wife to keep it inside and you, you know, and then you like, there is no James Dobson brochure on this. Um, in Colorado, that, you know, 22, 23 weeks is the cutoff. And so like we had to make a decision fairly quickly. And in all of my years of, of Christianity and it, all the horrible things you've heard from the beginning, um, there was nothing as dark as watching them wheel my wife down the hallway mm -hmm. and she's, you know, crying and screaming and I can't do anything about it. And mm -hmm. all the prayers and all the people that we had brought around us into what was supposed to be a miraculous story wasn't, mm -hmm. <laughs> but you, you go home, you sit on the deck and, put your hands out in the darkness and do I still believe this? I guess I do. <laughs> that was really hard because probably Can because everything imagine? else was so not hard. You know, it just, God's hand of blessing has been on my life the entire time, except in this one area. So we had to work through that. How hard uh, was that? I mean, for the two of you. I, in ways we are still working through it. Um, when you see, you, know, you open up a newspaper and see some dumb story about parents doing something dumb to a child, and you're like, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> I might not have been perfect. We got some issues, but I don't think I would have done that. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, God doesn't always make sense. And so, you know, just like my father, we have family waiting in heaven, but that doesn't, it's not always enough. You know, oh. but it is part of our story. It's part of what God has used to shape us. And we've invested a lot over the years in other people's kids. Yeah. In fact, we still do a niece and nephew who um, come over uh, every week for a meal with us. And they're local? They're local, yeah. Nice. So Greater Europe Mission, at what point did you guys leave the United States to go be <laughs> missionaries overseas? That was an adventure in faith. So well, I'm just and, sitting and at what, work. And, and what drew you guys to, to... Well, we were, you know, I'd, I was now in leadership and I'd been back and forth to Europe quite a bit. Um, but my old boss, Henry Deneen, 
actually challenged us, you know, if you want to lead missionaries, you need to learn a language, you need to raise the support, and you need to live overseas so you understand the things that they're going through. So like, okay, you know, I don't know what that's going to look like. My wife works at the Navigators. You know, she's got a full-time job. So one day an email shows up in my inbox, and it's one of our missionaries who lives in Germany saying, hey, does anyone in Colorado Springs want to swap houses for a year? And so I'm like, would you do this? And she's like, yeah, let's do this. Oh. So like five minutes later, we're like, yep, we'll do that. And uh, the Navigators amazingly let her work remotely for a year in Germany. What year is this? Uh, this, is, this would be 2011, 2012. Okay. And at the end of the first year, another couple said, hey, we'd kind of like to do the same thing. So they took over our house and our cars and our cell phones, and we moved from one house to another in Condern, Germany, which is, yeah. and it, it's beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful places on the planet, um, right at the southwest tip of the Black Forest. It's where Black Forest Academy is. So it's a little bit of a Christian Mecca, but we were determined not to get sucked into the bubble. Uh, so we moved over there not really. We had two semesters of college German, which is about enough to maybe order a, a beer. Um, <laughs> totally worthless. But moved over there, signed up for language class, and we just chose we're going to be all in. Yeah. So I remember walking around the town and praying, where is it that you would have us engage? And we ended up trying to impact uh, a couple places in town that I don't think most folks would have sought to engage with. Um, we both headed off with a couple who runs the Turkish kebab shop. And this is just about being kind and generous and going out of our way to be more than customers, but to care for them as people. And Molly ended up having a number of great relationships with women that started as language partners and coaches and turned into spiritual and life relationships. But over time, you know, you began to see, okay, these are the men who come in here every night. And it was a bit of a treasure hunt to kind of learn their names, began praying for them. Six months, I now have a little bit of German, not a lot, but a little bit. And uh, there's two things. One of them I think you'll appreciate. Uh, the first one, they had an event to honor two sick musicians. One's German and one's American. Um, like, cool, that's, that's kingdom stuff. So I rustled up as many Christians in town who are willing to go to this smoke-filled blue-collar pub. Because, I mean, it's this times 10 yeah. every given night. Yeah. And we just, we filled the place. And they Skyped in these two guys. And ironically, both of them said something to the effect, you know, thank you so much for raising some money for us. But what we really need is your prayers. We just need God to intervene. Yeah. And like suddenly a spiritual conversation was infused into this place that I could have never accomplished. Hmm. And the next day when I went back, the man who runs the place came over and sat down and said, you're the one who invited everybody. And then, you know, and this is all broken three-year-old English we're talking in or German. Yeah. But once he would talk to me, then other men began to talk to me. And, um, one day I was sitting there and I, I had on a Green Bay Packers shirt. Yeah. And a German man comes and sits down across the table from me wearing a Green Bay Packers shirt. Really? And that unlocked the door. And this is probably six months into a two-year period. So over time, all of those men, they knew I was Christian. They knew that I didn't really go in there to preach at them, but... I would talk to any of them and they started to ask like life questions. So none of them were worried about where they were going to go when they died, but okay, I'm separated from my wife and my daughter. I really want to be a good father. How should I love my daughter? How should wow. I, what should I do? Wow. And you know, okay, well, Here's, and I'm, you know, it's not like whipping out the Bible and showing them the verse, but like there's all kinds of biblical principles. Here, here's a biblical principle. Go try this. So next week when I saw him, they're like, well, how did it go? That went amazing. What's next? 
<laughs> and like over, I'm like, I'm like the priest <laughs> sitting here. And they, they welcomed me and they, it's what Christianity should be. I mean, I, it wasn't difficult at all. It just, it took me being willing to hang around broken people and hear crazy stuff. I mean, I heard things like, you know, 9-11 never happened. The CIA, you know, built the whole thing and you got like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but in time, like it, you could see these people who are very far from God making daily choices to live more like Christ. So that was amazing. And the pinnacle of that toward the time that we were going to come back to the States, the man who owned the place one day came to me and said, I haven't told you all of my story, but my son committed suicide when he was 21. I've never been able to go to his grave, but would you come with me and could we go to his grave together? Because he had heard my story of losing my son and he had it took me a while to, get, to be willing to have that conversation so those were amazing years and i haven't figured out exactly how to do that back here yet because none of that happens at starbucks but mm. holy smokes is that in a sense yeah but yeah, yeah i think that's my my shtick my story so what are you doing now with greater europe mission it's kind of ironic um for a guy who started out in a town of 30 people, I travel internationally quite a bit. I oversee all of our sending centers. So we have sending centers in the US, Canada, UK, Greece, Ireland, Germany. And they're, all of them are tasked with finding and training up missionaries. That's what I do for yeah. fun. For fun. It is fun. It's amazing. And you've written a book. <laughs> yeah. When the most recent John Burns, our current president, came in, I was kind of briefing him on kind of the history of the organization. And he's like, that's a really cool story. We should write a book. I'm like, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. Someone should write a book. He's like, you should write a book. I'm like, ah. And I did. Actually, I loved the process. I actually really enjoyed writing. And the book has done well. I mean, you know, there's not a lot of demand out there for the foundation stories of, you know, Christian nonprofits, but uh, it's an exciting story because it's, it's World War II, Saving Private Ryan meets terrorism in France, kind of thrown together into a story, asking the question, is it worth the risk as a missionary to go to hard places? And the, the founder of the organization was a Navy chaplain. He was the first Navy chaplain to go with the soldiers into combat. Um, and so that's kind of the w worth the risk. And he was almost killed by a tank mine driving a motorcycle back and forth on the beaches between groups he was discipling on the southern invasion of France. Not D-Day, but yeah. basically the same thing. Yeah. What is your greatest passion with your work? Um, what fuels you? What fuels me is when the light goes off for an average normal person to realize, oh, this is, I can do this. I can disciple people. I don't need a degree. I just need courage. And like watching people deconstruct some of their comfortably sitting in the pew theology and embracing more of the adventurous spirit of Jesus um, and going out and trying stuff. That's awesome. What's your role with Greater Europe Mission right now? What's your title? Senior Vice President International. So very lofty sounding. But we're just normal people who want to see Europe reached. What are some of the greatest struggles in Europe with bringing the gospel? Oh. The history of the church in Europe is pretty appalling. Um, so you're, they've gone past post-Christian, and they're now in almost a pre-Christian phase again. Really? You know, whether it's Ireland and you're looking at the abuse of children or um, some of the state churches, you know, what happened to the church in the Bonhoeffer era of Germany. I'm just There's a lot of tragedy in the church. 
and yet they're very open spiritually. Um, really? But isolation, I think, is probably the, the most crippling thing for people living in Europe. How so? What do you mean by isolation? The societies, like they have the pub culture, there's, there's a communal aspect of society, and yet you can live in that and be very alone, and particularly in the big cities. So inevitably, you know, people go as singles into the cities and live in some tiny little apartment trying to eke out a living and just very lonely. I mean, if you're willing to invest in people relationally, you know, there's no end to what you can do with the gospel in Europe. Yeah. John Gilberts, let's get to rapid fire questions. All right. Hey everyone, before we get to the rapid fire segment, I wanted to reshare a note that Kay and I got from an 80 year old listener that lives in Southeast Kansas and still works in his small town family business. He told us, I really lack male friendships because so many of my friends have passed the last few years, so I would value a group of men to spend time with. I'm learning some valuable lessons through the podcast and wish I was 30 rather than 80. I plan to stay tuned for more interviews. May God bless you and your group in 2020. He also talked about how we wrestle with the concept of men and women partaking in fine tobacco and drink because of the church and denomination he grew up in, but the podcast is changing that. When I showed this to Kay at his house recently, we both started tearing up. This is my why for doing this show. So if that moved you, would you consider partnering with us? Kay and I want to develop the website to better facilitate groups. We want to travel and get your stories for the podcast. We want to get back to doing two episodes a week, but we need your help. There are two simple ways you can help us out. Become a regular supporter at patreon.com slash holy smokes. That's patreon.com for as little as $5 a month. You can get early access to episodes, ad-free versions of the podcast, free swag like a holy smokes t-shirt, and more. That's patreon.com slash holy smokes. You can also make a one-time tax-deductible donation at paypal.me slash holy smokes club. And both of those links are in the show notes. Thanks. Rapid fire. Fire. Here. All right, so at the beginning, we didn't get into the cigars we were smoking. You have? Uh, Oliva Melanio V. I know. It's kind of like saying I like the Yankees, but um, I do like Oliva because they don't give you any trouble. They always burn well. But I really like the Maduro V. That's my favorite. Ooh, all right. When did you first try cigars? Was it at? The Wild at Heart. I mean, Wild I, at Heart? I had to have plenty of cigarette smoking in my earlier days, but yeah. a cigar was at Wild Heart. What do you prefer? Have you ever done pipe? I have done a pipe. I like the whole Gandalf shtick. And it is good because, it, it, you know, if you're ADHD, pipes are fun, which I am. But <laughs> on the same hand, sometimes you don't want the work. What's your favorite cigar? Favorite cigar would... Um, Oliva Maduro V. Most expensive cigar you've ever smoked? I had a Padron that was like $25. That's as good as it gets for me. Best dollar for dollar cigar? I've had good luck with a company called Bugatti. I know they make cars, but they also make cigars really? that are surprisingly affordable and decent for their price range. I'm going to have to look that one up. Where's your go-to place to get your smokes? Um, Stag, if I want something specific to try, and then Cigars International if I want a box of them or bulk. If you're celebrating, what's your splurge cigar? Probably an Oliva, just a bigger one. (laughs) (laughs) What's your favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? I love scotch. Scotch, scotch, scotch. (laughs) Scotchy, scotch, scotch. Yeah, exactly. What Uh, scotch? I like the Outer Islands, the really peaty stuff like a Talisker. Uh, My UK gem executive director 
like that's his passion is to go find some tiny island where they're putting scotch in a barrel and bring back special stuff so I, that's one of my favorite places to go for ministry is he's <laughs> always got the good stuff <laughs> who's the most interesting person you've ever met through cigars through cigars hmm carl <laughs> as carl holmes walks by uh, well uh it was eric defore who invited me to this and really i mean he's in a, a wealth of knowledge and that's what I love about Holy Smokes, uh, particularly in my role, is I can come any given Wednesday night, no matter what I'm dealing with in ministry, there is some wise sage sitting around the room who probably has dealt with it in the past and can help me figure it out. Um, so it's hard to pick. Best conversation over a cigar. I heard the story of Eric Dufour's uncle uh, which is a, the Dunkirk story. Okay. And that was amazing. We were at a camp just sitting, watching the stars and whatnot. It was amazing night and story. But I've had many stories. Yeah. All the way from, you know, QAnon <laughs> on down the spectrum. Yeah. Most memorable place you've ever had a cigar. <laughs> they were wanting to me, me to say the confessional. <laughs> which is Troy's place. And trust me, it is memorable. But probably two summers ago, I climbed way up above the city of Dubrovnik and had a, just sat there and watched the sunset with a nice bottle of Where wine. Where is that? Croatia. Okay. It's a stunning medieval city. Really? At one of the most amazing places I've ever been. Like the seats are, the streets are still marble. They're actually featured in um, The Last Jedi. Yeah. The scene where the ridiculous animals are running down the street. Yeah. That's Dubrovnik. Ah. <laughs> so there. Marvel or DC? Marvel. Who's your favorite superhero? Probably the um, Quinn or the, the Galaxy. Not Star Lord. West. Star Lord, yes. Guardians, Guardians of the Galaxy. Guardians of the Galaxy. Peter Quill. Quill. Nice. Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. There is no Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite food? It's right between a pizza and an Indian curry. Favorite pizza place in the city? Or favorite pizza place anywhere? Favorite pizza place anywhere? Gino's East in Chicago. Giordano's is nice, but... Gino's is... Yeah. You have a favorite pizza place here in Colorado Springs? Not really. I mean, okay. you know, we moved here. The difference between living in Chicago and living in, in Colorado Springs, not that I don't love living in Colorado Springs. There you actually had the ethnic food. Here, I remember thinking, oh, old Chicago, that's going to be amazing. <laughs> and it is a good pizza, but it's not Chicago pizza. Yeah. So it's all chain stuff, mostly. Yeah. Although Louis is our go-to. Louise. Dogs, cats, neither or both? I know you got cats. <laughs> I grew up with dogs. We have cats and we love our cats. Our cats actually went to Germany with us. Yeah. Had to get, we had to get little pet passports and the whole nine <laughs> yards. Um, but yeah, we've, we've had great luck with great cats. Nickname growing up or in college? <laughs> uh, growing up, it was Gil Boogie, which is both good and bad. You can imagine. Yeah. What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? Well, I, I mentioned it briefly, but yeah, that I, I had an improvised jazz scholarship. Not everybody gets one of those. If you were stranded on a desert island with only one movie, what would it be? Tommy Boy. <laughs> <laughs> Epic. That's awesome. Favorite one to three books not titled The Holy Bible? The Eye of the World, which is cheating because it's 14 book series, Robert Jordan, Lord of the Rings, probably in there too, just because when I first read it, it was transformative mm. and probably Wild at Heart. I mean, I'm, I'm a, still, I dole that thing out every time I find a, a guy who's getting married or something like here, have your wife read this. It'll help. Nice. Do you have a life scripture? Yeah. Uh, James 125, 
But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in all they do. If you could live anywhere, where would that be? I think we would go back to Germany. Really? It's beautiful, and we're both German heritage, so it, it actually felt more like home than here does sometimes. Mm. That's cool. What's your greatest strength, and what's your greatest weakness? <laughs> Good, bad, otherwise, I am wired for leadership, so... I excel in that arena, problem solving. Weakness, sometimes I can't keep my mouth shut. <laughs> it gets me in trouble every once in a while. Who's been the greatest influence in your life? Single greatest? Yeah. Probably, boy, that's tough. Probably, <laughs> I'm going to go with Getty Lee, but really it's all three of them. But just that. Uh, so musicians from the band Rush. Okay. Um, just that commitment to lifelong learning and improvement and never stopping, and plus art and beauty thrown in. Who's the first person you think of when you hear the word successful? Probably just because it's recent for me, but Paul Stanley, who's a, a local legend here in town, uh, former navigator, just recently passed away, but... Serial discipler, and been there, done that, and it, you know, to the reason it comes to mind is having been to his his funeral and watched half the city show up to say, "This man <laughs> changed my life." Yeah. What do you do for self care, to rest, to recharge? Video games. I still play guitar. What video games? Um, are you into right now? This is going to out me, but like yeah, Call right. of Duty or okay. something okay. like that. And photography. And I, just, I need to get out in nature. I need to find a place that's silent. Yeah. My world is not silent. Yeah. Your fellow cheesehead, what's the best type of cheese? I like stinky cheese. So like a good French Munster. Which you, the closest you can get around here, if you go to King Supers, is called Funkmeister. Mm -hmm. It's just north of Limburger and the smelliness of cheese. But I want to know I'm eating a piece of cheese. Last three questions. What does Holy Smokes mean to you, and what has it contributed to your spiritual journey? Holy Smokes is a rescue, an absolute rescue. And I, I you know, Eric and I talked about it. You know, like two ships passing in the night because we both traveled. He's like, you got to come, you got to come. And finally, we were both here at the same time. And he brought me one night. Once you live overseas, you're never really an American again. You're something else. And so I felt very displaced when we came back from Europe. Really? And How so? <laughs> and there's this, it's a complex thing. Like, oh, you must be so happy to be back. And like, well kind of and oh how did you stand the social medicine and like oh i went a couple of times and it wasn't awful <laughs> yeah. you know and, and there's this nuanced answer to everything i wish i could take everybody from america on a trip because <laughs> it, it i think it just helps but it's you just feel displaced a bit when you come back um, because there were so many things that we missed that communal pub stuff is hard to find the, holy smokes is the closest i've found by far. And so it was an absolute rescue. Plus, you know, the higher you are in organizational leadership, you have no one to talk to. So you need to find somebody outside of the organization to talk to. And this place is a treasure trove of wise men and women. If you could have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, uh, who would they be? Can't name Jesus. Probably Bonhoeffer would be one. Ooh, yes. Tolkien. Nice. And we'll go with Getty Lee. <laughs> I've met him, but, you know, it was a book signing in and out. Yeah. I would be fascinated to sit and talk. Last question. If we're meeting one year from today, and I got a bottle of your favorite Petey Scotch, <laughs> what are we celebrating? Um, 
the end of COVID and the return to some semblance of ministry, normal ministry. How has it that affected you guys? Yeah, amazingly, God has shown up. I have incredible stories of ministry still happening despite the lockdown. But I think like everybody right now, our, especially you know the, our folks in UK and Germany and some of these places where they have lockdown, like we have not experienced lockdown here in the United States. They can't go outside without their papers. And so you have people who are over there trying, you know, communicating with their donors, but they can't leave their house. And just all the mental pressure on them to be missionaries when they can't do their normal stuff is really difficult. And we spend a lot of our time like having virtual wine and cheese, you know, nights with our missionaries just to try to keep them out of despair. So it's, it's tough days. How can listeners come alongside and support you guys in practical ways and what you guys are trying to do over there in Europe? Well, my first answer is always sign up for a trip. Come and see. We like to say that Europe, a trip to Europe you know, ministry-wise is like a time travel. So you can go 20 years into the future. If you want to see what America is going to look like and what ministry may need to look like when it isn't favorable, um, then come and see a church in a bar or a church in, in some of these very creative places and see how normal and natural it can actually be. And then come back and do it in your neighborhood. So that's probably my favorite thing is to see people catch that vision that this isn't for the professionals, this is for us. John Gilberts, thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. My uh, thank you. That's great. <laughs>